Tom Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast, where this week we are going to be talking about the, the Sanctum? Sanctum? <laughs> Just Sanctum. It's, the Sanctum. I think for once I want to leave the definite article off, and that's correct, isn't it? It's Sanctum, yeah? Right. Uh, well, that's what we're going to be talking about, Sanctum. I am Tom Chick. That right there was Christian Melazinski. Uh, my my name is Luca. I, I fell from the second floor. And we also have with us uh, Kelly Wand, who hopefully brings us a tagline that somehow ties into James Cameron's Sanctum. Yeah, since last week's was too lofty for you, and not related to the movie we were talking about. Uh, two ways you can tell Sanctum apart from the other James Cameron movies. It's the one with the one-word title and the dark blue palette. <laughs> okay. See what I did there? There was yeah. that too. Oh wait, what's he? Oh, dude, Kelly, what's he? Doing? <laughs> uh, now, Dingus, since you are our resident James Cameron apologist, you're a huge, huge fan of Avatar. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Sanctum before we run off people who haven't seen it yet and might not want to hear any spoilers? <laughs> All right. Well, th- this week we saw um, Sanctum. The- this particular version of Sanctum is a 2011 3D thriller action movie. Wow. Yeah. I could have said horror there, but I didn't. I said thriller action. And it's about a cave exploration diving team who must find an escape route when their cave is flooded by a storm. Uh, Alistair Grierson directed it. It's by a script uh, by John Garvin and Andrew White, inspired by White's own near-death experience. The film is rated R for language, some violence, and disturbing images. Kelly Wan, how did you feel about that rated that R rating? Didn't you? Do you love that? Because you you always want all movies to be rated R, right? Yeah, but if it's a true story, it should be rated G because it really happened. So kids should see it because there could have been kids there. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what do you think of that? <laughs> I, I'm not buying it. Sorry. Oh, I thought I had a pretty good system worked out. <laughs> None of it makes sense to anybody. Uh, I Kelly, mean, do you have a? Then The Exorcist should be rated G. That's, this movie can't be a true story. None of it's true, is it? Inspired. It's inspired. Oh, all right. All right. Inspired. Uh, Kelly, yes, Tom, why don't you, <laughs> yeah, give us a give us a more detailed synopsis because let, let's start talking about things like could this be a true story? Could this happen to you? Things like that. We'll get into those questions once we dive a little deeper, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that was awesome. Uh, I don't get. But, but first, uh, if you haven't seen it, we're going to start spoiling things now. So, I don't know. If you're going to see it, you might want to bail and then come back and listen once you've seen it. I don't know. Uh, Kelly Wand, give us a <laughs> more detailed synopsis. You know what, Tom? I cave in. That was funny. <laughs> okay. That wasn't I've the got to play poker with Tom someday. <laughs> I've got to do it. Yeah, I'm kind of curious, too. He's either the worst or the best. But he's probably the worst. Based on what? Never mind. Based on the sex. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Sanctumopsis. Uh, 
by the way, I saw this at ten ten this morning on Super Bowl Sunday because I thought it'd be desolate and not three D, and it was kind of packed. And three D? No. Okay. I'm. You know what? I'm on strike. I'm not seeing any more three D movies. What do you think of that shit? Okay. Now for the Sanctumopsis. We'll discuss that in another podcast. Ready? Go. I can roll. I wrote this on Vicodin, by the way, because I have a toothache. So it might be a little more meditative than the usual. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> this billionaire named Mr. Fantastic <laughs> has um, his brunette girlfriend and his angry Australian spelunker employees, unwilling kid, fly out to help them carry some oxygen tanks down to this cave they're exploring so they can make this computer sim of it and sell it to James Cameron. And some words on the screen tell us that it's day 34, so we know when this is. And uh, they're flying a helicopter to the place, and the billionaire goes, Hey, brain teaser, why do we cave? And everyone goes, uh... And then the girlfriend goes, I don't think that's a verb, honey. And he goes, nope. That's why. And he nods to a big cave that they're flying towards. So his answer to the question, why do we cave, was cave up ahead. So they don't fly the helicopter into the cave because James Cameron's only king of the surface world. And uh, the billionaire yells at Frank, the guy's son's father, down in the cave for taking too long and warns him that he's bringing a bottle of Zima down soon so he better shape up. Uh, so, oh, and there's a shot of like a, a shaman, like a, like an old New Guinea shaman <laughs> slapping dust on his arm. Anyway, they get into their cave clothes and the son goes, uh, hey, want to see another place humans have never been? And he pulls down his pants and he spreads his ass cheeks and a gerbil falls out and some poo, which... Because it's not a human. So. And the billionaire and his girlfriend go, okay. But the girlfriend seems kind of into it. And uh, he says, no, the billionaire says, this cave's not going to beat me. And his girlfriend goes, what could go wrong diving into caves? And then the son goes, I don't know, maybe this? And then he pulls his pants down again. And they go, okay, dude, get it. Thank you, James Cameron. And... Uh, the billionaire bets the kid 50 bucks that he'll beat him to the bottom of the crater. And the kid tells him he's going to get spanked because that's kind of his theme. And uh, they start down and then the billionaire, because he's a uh, dare seeking thrill devil, surprises them by jumping in and opening up this parachute. Only a bunch of laundry flies out of the pack instead because the girlfriend got confused and the billionaire lands really hard, and he breaks his legs, and he's hurt, but he's all, pay up. And they head for the forward base, even though it should be called the downward one. And uh, they have this underwater robot named after Virgil, the man who didn't write Inferno. And the robot never does anything. And the guy's son's dad is told that Mildred, the woman diver, is acting out of sorts so he tells her to stay in the cave but she's all why because i'm a woman and he's all all right all right whatever and then they go down and they find a big dark lightless pit that the actors see but we don't and he goes it's like a cathedral kind of and she goes yeah but wetter 
oh, look, here's the organ in the stained glass. And then she hits her head. So her oxygen tank gets a hole in it. And he tries to give her his, but this just makes her matter, so she dies. So he goes up top, and his son blames him for letting her die. And he goes, did you bring those oxygen tanks down, like I asked, that could have saved her life? And the kid goes, mom was right. You never stop pushing. It's always about the oxygen with you. And uh, there's friction. And then there's a storm, like Dingus said, because they're on an island during storm season. And unfortunately for them, the cave opens straight up instead of off to the side, which is bad rain-wise, unless you're the rain. And so their forward base gets flooded, and some rocks fall, and they get stuck because they forgot to bring enough ropes. And the kid forgot the oxygen tanks, and all they have to drink is the bottle of Zima that the billionaire brought to celebrate day 34. And... Uh, the kid's angry, and he shows one of the NPC climbers this tooth that the dad got him for his birthday that he took off a boar that was shitting on his face one morning. But he uh, turned it into a flashlight, uh, and there's some nail clippers attachments and a calendar and a calendar and a very small vibrator. And uh, it keeps raining. So they wriggle through some tunnels and they lose their least attractive members to the elements. And the hot girlfriend doesn't want to wear the dead woman's wetsuit because she's a size two. Uh, and they go, okay, you have to take all your clothes off. And she goes, wait, what? Want to be colder? And they go, yeah, but it'll make us warmer. And she's all, oh, okay. And they lie around and she's under like a uh, flimsy space blanket made out of tang. And they all use up the last of their lights batteries, like looking at her and ogling her. And the Mexican guy has the bends. So he writes, George was here out of his feces on a cave wall and hides in a puddle. And they look for him, but not really. Uh, even though he took all their food, including the plastic baggie of magic mushrooms that the son brought. And uh, while they're crossing this pit, the billionaire accidentally shines his light in his girlfriend's face. Uh, which makes her slip because the guy, the smart guy goes, no, don't shine the light at her. And that makes her slip. And then she gets her neck tangled up in a rope <laughs> and they tell her to calm down and stop breathing. But she goes, no, I'll use my knife. So she tries to cut her head off, but cuts <laughs> through the rope instead and dies. So the billionaire's bummed and the dad goes, look, she made the decision for you to make her come down here. She made the decision to cut her head off. She made the decision to agree to our decision to carry the last of our water and our map and cell phones and laptop. We've got to keep moving. And the billionaire goes, okay, and takes off with their last tank of air. And the dad goes, wait, that's not what I meant. But it's too late. <laughs> it's like I wrote the movie, but different, huh? Uh, so the dad and the son hang out, and they find a Japanese uh, tank, like a, a mechanical kind. What are those called, Tom? Tanks. Tanks. Thank you. <laughs> Not like the air tank. Uh, but the guns don't work anymore because James Cameron's a racist. And the dad tells him he's proud of him for not bringing the extra tanks down that they needed because it's more challenging this way. And his dad sang this poem because it was the mom's favorite. A skunk sat on his stump. The stump thunk. The skunk stunk. Inspector Fuzz. 
kill my landlord. So the son learns it by heart, vaguely, and they keep going, and they find the billionaire who's gone crazy from being alone for like 10 minutes. <laughs> so they give him their food, all of it, and he goes, you didn't bring the Zima? And he attacks the dad and impales him on a stalagmite, and the dad goes, my pancreas, and the billionaire leaves again. And the son kneels by his dad and goes, thanks for inviting me here. This has been awesome. I totally fucking love you now. And the dad goes, that's great, but your foot's crushing my pancreas again. Also, uh, I feel better. I think I'm good to go, actually. And the kid goes, no, I can do this. And he presses his dad's face underwater. And the dad goes, no, wait, I'm okay. The wetsuit, absorb the blow. Just let me up, please. But then he can't talk anymore because the son's sitting on his face and smothering him to death with gerbils <laughs> and poo. While he's saying the poem aloud to drown out his dad's agonized protests. And finally, the deed is done. The son finds that the billionaire eccentrically saved all those farts in this canister. So the kid takes it and takes a hit off it every few seconds while he swoops through the underwater Himalayas. And he has to stop to breathe through some snorkels that James Cameron left for him in the cave roof. And also he finds the dead billionaire and there's still a little bit of air left in a bubble in his dead butthole. And he keeps swimming and swimming. And I went to the bathroom and came back. He's still swimming and looking impatiently at me from the screen. So I apologize, and he rolls his eyes and swims some more, and he finally sees light up ahead, and he swims toward it, and he bursts to the surface, sucking in these giant gasping woofs of air, and he looks around, and against all logic, he's inside the whale tank at SeaWorld, and the audience claps, but my audience just kind of moaned and shuffled the eggs. The end. Uh, that was pretty epic, Kelly Wand. Wow. <clears throat> I might have left stuff out, but I took notes this time during the movie, so... I don't think you did, actually. <laughs> Didn't fly a helicopter in the cave. Sad face. <laughs> the rest. Kelly Wong, to write that. <clears throat> would you like to tell me where you received your training? Afghanistan? <laughs> Chechnya? You know, you're... You people call it magic, but... Uh... uh that's uh, dumb, too, because he doesn't have the hammer, and if he had the hammer, they would go, where'd you learn the hammer training? Well, we'll cover all that in our Thor podcast. Uh, <laughs> I want to see that thing. Fuck that. I want to see Sanctum again. And I walked past the a theater playing The Roommate, and inside I just heard, like, women shrieking incoherently. <laughs> and did you like, wish that you'd been in there? Oh, uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. I go, huh. I actually felt the same way. I was like, man, I could have seen a crappy horror movie. Right. Mm. Dingus, why were you gonna uh, why were you gonna stick horror in the descriptors for Sanctum? because uh, of the stalagmites. <laughs> mm. Taps into and the, and the, Oh, there's a scalp. Somebody gets scalped. There's uh there's some uh, as you said, Dingus, disturbing images. Yeah. I was wondering, so going in, I was like, okay, this is rated R. I'm going to look for the stuff that made it rated R that, for instance, you couldn't have in True Grit, which is PG-13. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure what things those were. I'm guessing... Male butts. Now, I'm thinking it was the dead bodies. There were a few okay. ghastly corpses. You think maybe that was it that earned them the R rating? Uh, I think it was the... Uh, if you use the F word a certain number of times in certain contexts, then you're going to get an R. It doesn't matter... It, 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 there's just a there's a hard and fast rule about the number of times you can say the f word. And that sounds pretty I, scientific. I see now why people defend the rating system because if you hear <laughs> fuck three times, which is two, a thirteen year old will be traumatized. I don't think I th I I blame more the the corpse imagery. All right, 
that that was my thinking. Uh, I mean, I know dingus. You can only say so many f words. I don't. Did they exceed that? Were there a lot of f bombs dropped in this movie? Uh, there were. There was there an, was there a c word too? No. Oh, I'm thinking of buried. Never mind. Called him a soft cock. Yes, but that could have meant anything. That's right. It could have been talking about C A U L K. Did you Wait. guys recognize anyone from Animal Kingdom, by the way? Oh yeah, uh, George. Crazy George. George, I, I recognized him, but it wasn't until I looked up afterwards. I was like, oh yeah, he was the lawyer in Animal Kingdom. Uh, by the way, have you seen? I didn't know that until I looked that up. Did you have you seen um, the Ezra White short? No. <laughs> is Ezra White like a standalone character? In, uh... Apparently, um, David, is it David Michaud? Is that his yep. first? His first short is called Ezra White LLB. And um, and that was like in 2006. And, uh, and so this character comes back for Animal Kingdom, but it's a previous character and I can't find it. Uh, but, I, but I only found that out. But, you know... Uh, my wife actually was looking at the IMDb page as we were driving somewhere, and then when I was researching afterward, I found out that there's this short called Ezra White, which is Ezra White is the character he plays in Animal Kingdom. Why didn't we see that instead of James Cameron's Sanctum? If it had been James Cameron's Ezra White LLB short, we would have seen it. <laughs> now, Dingus, as our resident James Cameron fan, you love everything he does. You mm-hmm. are a huge apologist. You think that... He has the Midas touch. I believe those are the words you've used before. You've said, James Cameron has the Midas touch. Everything he touches <laughs> turns to gold. I could be paraphrasing a little bit. Dark blue gold. <laughs> uh, Dingus, what did you think of Sanctum? How, did, how, did, uh, uh, how, did, how does this fit in with the James Cameron pantheon of divine instances? His oeuvre. Yeah. Oeuvre. Um, I would have loved it had I not had to... Had it not been saddled with the James Cameron name, no, I, I think I, I I like one of the movies this is and not the other of the movies this is. Um, I like the movie that uh, that Frank is in because I I don't know mm-hmm. I just I really like that guy, but I hate the movie that Ioan Grufeld is in with the guy who plays Josh and everybody else except for uh, George. Um, but uh, I would like to watch the movie with uh, with uh, Richard Roxbury. I think it's Richard Roxbury. I dare you, Roxbury. Rock, I, re- I remember that guy. I remember Moulin Rouge. Right? That guy out Moulin Rouge and thinking, "Wow, he's good." Uh, he's yeah, really he's good, and he's great as as sort of a uh, a stand-in Ed Harris kind of guy. Um, but he was. I really, really liked him a lot, and nobody else could really stand up to him except for um, Jude's, who they killed off immediately. Mm-hmm. I liked him too, and I was really bummed that he gets he gets killed by the dumbest ass character in the movie. Like that's a, that was really annoying to me because he was like such a badass guy, and like that's his end. He survives all that. I mean, what? Yeah, you know what, Kelly Wan? It's all the character arc. He's got to pay penance for not being a good father. But he could have done something heroic. Instead, he just dies because he didn't notice dumbass coming up behind him. Like that guy's smarter than Frank. Fuck it's that. sort of like the gratuitous. It's like the gratuitous fight scene in a movie where two dudes are fighting and one of them falls over and hits his head because he has to and die at that moment. Like It's sort of like, okay, we've got to get you out, so we're just going to have a fight scene and you're going to magically hit your head so hard that it's going to kill you. I like the son killing him. I thought that was good, actually. The son didn't kill Killing who? Oh, the killing dad. the father? Oh, good lord. Mercy killing him. No, that was all right. You know, they set it up. 
uh, with Tom. I just want you to help me. Can you just help me, Tom? (laughs) (laughs) No, and he says no. See, here's the deal. They set it up with Richard Roxburgh, Mercy killing uh, his his henchman, you know, the NPC, as you put it, Kelly Wan. That was a good setup. But then when they come to the actual scene, it, it and, and when Richard Roxburgh had to drown that fellow, the fellow was struggling and he had to strain mm-hmm. to hold him under the water. And it was uh, it was, you know, it it made me think a little bit of the weird intimacy of strangling. And I think uh, Christoph Waltz had talked about that. When he talks about killing the woman at the end of *Inglorious Bastards*, um, you know what it really means to strangle someone, uh, and how it really requires a lot of power. There's a lot of conflict, a lot of contact, um, and they 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 made that come out a little bit in that scene where Richard Roxburgh drowns his henchman. But then when we get to the son having to do that to his father, they played it all relaxed and beatific, and the son was looking kind of wistful. Uh, it was just it was so clumsy. I, I thought. Well, I think that well, part of that is because that character can't can't handle, any, or not the character, that actor can't handle yeah. any of those scenes. He he can't play to Richard Roxburgh's level right. in any of those scenes, and he doesn't even have the power to play to. And I, what is the name of the actor who plays George? Crap. Uh, it's even. Yeah, even in George's uh, go on and leave me scene, he he can't even play up to that. He can play up to any of those. So they have to sort of lay off and show this, like you said, this beatific, uh, you know, Jesus in the water kind of moment. Uh, so, it, in, yeah, in, I think with maybe a couple of better actors, you know, that I, I hated this movie. It was so stupid. But if maybe Richard Roxburgh was awesome. So if maybe they paired him with a better actor playing his son. Some of this would have been salvageable. But Dingus, you talk about it as two movies, and I, I just can't see it that way. I, I look at this as one crappy movie that poor Richard Roxburgh was was basically stranded in. Um, I'd I'd love to it, I'd love to see him, you know, in this kind of movie, but I just think there was nothing here for him. There was no one really for him to interact with. Even George, George just kind of played like a clown. I mean, I liked a couple of the scenes between them, but and the, and his death was so ridiculous to just go like lie down and die somewhere that. Ugh. Uh, uh, well, they set it up to be noble, and then they they cheated on it. You know, it's it's set up to the the moment is when he's sitting there and he's telling the story of the time your father fucked up, and then he says, "Go on now." That's his and that's goodbye. that that's supposed to, yeah, exactly Kelly. That's supposed to be his goodbye, right? And <laughs> and the kid should should be that should be his mad moment where he goes, "Okay," but instead. Then George has to cough into his hand because we, as an audience, can't figure out what the bends mean. And then they have to run back and find him hiding in a puddle somewhere and not not find him. Yeah. So it cheats on that one moment which, which could have been noble for that character. Uh, and it's just – it highlights that kid's obliviousness. I mean, yeah. I, my favorite scene in this movie – Early on, I was kind of with the, the movie during some of the times. Uh, but I think when I realized this movie is going to be terrible – and this kid is going to ruin it, is when he comes back down uh, to get them, you know, and he's braving all the raging waters, and uh, Richard Roxburgh is climbing up to meet him, and the kid pokes his head through the hole with the water coming through, and he has to announce, the cave is flooding. You think? (laughs) That was just so amazing. Well, Frank would know that. And Frank says, Frank's retort is, you think? You know, I wondered if he said something because I literally yeah. was laughing out loud at that moment. I, I don't I think I was the only guy in the audience, but I just got a huge belly laugh out of that. Uh, so I missed the next line. But I, what kind of idiot character 
Like, what th- d- does the script know? This kid is an idiot. Uh, no, unfortunately. And, and when, when we left, I was thinking he's got to be like some sort of sports guy that they plugged in. Like he's a he's a famous climber in Australia or a diver or something. And and he they forced him to act in this, but no, he's an actual actor. He's like a TV guy, if I'm not mistaken. Or was I looking up? Didn't he have? Like no, no, you're right. You're right. On an Australian TV show, yeah. Uh, so, do you get what I'm saying hmm. when I say this might have worked if it hadn't had James Cameron's name on it? Well, I, I there was a lot of Cameron Cameronization <laughs> to it. Right. Underwater camera, man, his fusion cam. Well, and even like That's, the that the, the opening uh, bit with the little CG of the cave, which is just like he did with Titanic, where it's sort of this, uh, I'm going to show Titanic. you the area first. Uh, but in that, it mattered. And in this, it was totally irrelevant. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, here's my thinking, is that they, they have this script that's, you know, a, a plucky Australian survival drama. They don't get anyone famous for it. So they're just going to stick James Cameron's name on the front of it and make it 3D, and that's how they're going to to sell it. And if it, if it hadn't sucked in the first place, I would have applauded that effort. You know, stick James Cameron's name on a plucky Australian survival adventure. Fine, make it 3D. But I, I, I don't know, Dingus, like, do you think there were specific Cameron touches that, that made this thing fall apart? Well, I don't know that that's the case, but there are moments in the movie that just made me think, well, he always does this. He always does this. You know, the storm is coming. Yikes. Uh, there's a crazy dude. He's going to become homicidal. Uh, the bends are going to affect the character. Oh, look, there's Virgil. There's Little Geek. Um, there's the wacky guy who runs Little Geek, who, which might have been parts of some plucky Australian filmmaker's homage to him. But if you put James Cameron's... Sanct- uh, Rick Santorum sanctum thing up, up, up in front of it, then I just tick those off as you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. Come on, and and for me, I, I was just thinking if I had just seen this as as this random Australian film that came out of nowhere, I when I thought, oh, you guys are trying to do some some Cameron stuff, and you don't quite have the budget, but you're trying it, so good. Uh, and that's what. And it mean. would have been the Australian cave movie that's not The Descent. <laughs> That's what it would have been. That's not Australian, story. though. <laughs> it's not? I thought the uh, Neil Marshall is English. He's very English, I believe. Isn't that no, his I'll, name, I'll, Neil Marshall, the Descent director? Don't they all talk Australian? So, yeah. But it was fun whenever they were in a cave to think about, oh, I wonder if something's going to jump out. But yeah, like, there, where were the bat people? Where were the aliens? And, and you're right, Ding, it's that whole, that journey deeper and deeper rather than to the safety of the surface. You know, just going deeper and deeper into the unknown without air to breathe. That was so much like Ed Harris's descent at the end of the abyss. Uh, mm-hmm. it totally was a ripoff of that. Yeah. Um, but in that, but in abyss, you see what's happening, and you see the actual. You see below him, and you see what he's going towards. And in this, they just show people's faces looking like, oh, oh no, looks tough in there. Looks like a tight fit, but then you don't see like when she's going through there and she gets stuck, and then she has to shove something ahead of her, and she's getting annoyed. <laughs> you can't even see what she's shoving or like why it's stuck. Well, and they don't show the resolution of, of it either. The no, only resolution of it is she. Oh, okay, here she comes out the other side. They right. stuck this little tense situation. And yeah. then I don't. It, did they not shoot a resolution to it? Did they not think it was important? Uh, you know, no one, and they don't, they don't show why the, the other people can't help her. Like they all just stand around, like. Right. Oh, 
about. Because they they figured the reveal of her emerging from that little uh, nun's nasty is going to be more interesting to us than helping her out. Yeah. Yeah. Lame. Uh, Dingus, you talked a bit like when we saw the uh, the way back. You you mentioned some erratic bits. Like I couldn't help but watch this and think. I wonder if this makes Dingus Dingus appreciate Shit. the way back a little bit more. You know, as far as an Australian funded adventure story, I hope Dingus now appreciates what he got with the way back. Now that he's having to sit through Sanctum. Did that happen? I, I well, I actually was sitting here and thinking. I wonder if Tom is realizing what a great adventure this is. And how the way back is not an adventure movie, <laughs> because I, I don't. I mean, I think there are moments that are you know full of tension and suspense and adventure. And thanks to thanks to the presence of Richard Roxburgh, there's somebody who is there to sell that. And I think a lot of that works, and a lot of the photography works. I, I don't think it's in the service of something great, but I think a lot of that works as an adventure film. Kelly Wand, Dingus is saying nice things about Sanctum. Are you? Yeah, are come you, on over. Are you with him, Kelly Wand? Mm, I want to be. I wanted to be the one guy, but I think he <laughs> liked it more than I did. Even I, I've, I liked Frank, and I liked I. Here's the thing, Tom. I'm really freaked out by caves and drowning, so I can't. My opinion can't be trusted on shit like this. Like even shitty cave movies always make me, always unsettle me. They give me disturbing images. <laughs> okay. Well, here's what here's uh, what killed it for me. Uh, I wouldn't have minded if it was just uh, a goofy action uh, movie about diving in a cave, kind of like Cliffhanger. You know, where the mountain climbing stuff doesn't really matter. It's just Sylvester Stallone running around. There's going to be a couple of mountain climbing scenes, but it's really at heart an action movie, and it's stupid. I wouldn't have minded if that was this. But instead, I think this tried to pretend to be a kind of a serious survival drama where the there was supposed to be some actual character development in the father-son tension. I thought mm. any effort at serious survival drama fell flat. And certainly the father-son tension that was supposed to make us care about the characters was just terrible because of that, that kid. Um, so it didn't work for me on either of those levels, and it looked like it... Uh, yeah, and so it just it just fell apart completely because it I think it failed at what it tried to set out to do. So even though Dingus, I can agree with you that yeah, there there, there were some scenes that I think were kind of shot well and maybe had a little tension to them. Uh, it just the whole thing. I didn't I didn't care about anyone. I wasn't along. You know, I wasn't enjoying the ride that much. Uh, like for instance. In a movie like this, if you're going to present your characters as, as sort of knowing what they're doing, you know, Richard Roxburgh, we're supposed to think he's a really competent guy. Mm-hmm. But the, the the setup for why things go wrong in this movie is so underdeveloped and it's so mm. stupid. And there's yeah. a couple of these. Anytime something goes wrong, it's because the character did something stupid, starting with we're told early on the storm is two days out. Now, how if if a storm can magically jump on them like that, they should. Why are they? Yeah, why are they still down there? Uh, and and how is it that a you know they they don't have some sort of redundant system that one little box shorting out means the the camp up top is just going to abandon them? Like that whole setup right there was really, yeah. really stupid. I thought no phones. Right. So if they get to that crater later, it won't help them. Like they'd have phone reception there if they had phones. 
that well, and nobody from the top went down to get them or anything. At right. the top, they just abandoned them. Like, uh-huh. and if the storm is that close, like you, you need to be careful about something like that. You know, if these guys were competent down there, you know, they knew the storm was coming. No one ever explained to me how it is that the storm suddenly jumped two days and, and landed on them. Similarly, when uh, Jude's dies, uh, what the heck was going on there? Like, I don't know. Professional divers, too, they even talk about when she's exhausted, you know, don't die. Right. Uh, they use a little catchphrase, which, I, you know, I'm a diver, and you, you hear this catchphrase, uh, plan the dive, dive the plan. And, and that simply means, you know, don't, don't, don't fuck around. You know, know what you're going to do and just do that and, and don't push yourself. You know, diving is very serious business. It, it's not necessarily complicated, but you can do very, if, if you're not careful of very simple mistakes, you, you can hurt yourself. And, and one of those is being fatigued when you dive. You know, the fact that the woman does that, uh, I don't know what was going on with these backup oxygen bottles, but that sounded serious. Uh, you don't, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't have enough oxygen and if they had to, like, change the schedule to go get it themselves, I, that wasn't really explained. But, but then when she does drown, uh, an important part of diving is, is being prepared for those sorts of those sorts of problems. You know, if an air hose gets torn, somebody who dives, and especially diving in either wrecks or caves, is trained to, to buddy breathe. And they even talk about the, the full face mask. I have never, uh, I've, I've been diving since 1990, uh, I, I think. I, I have never seen a, a, an outfit, you know, a, a, a buoyancy vest that doesn't have a spare mouthpiece on it. Uh, and they say, oh, it's the most – he did the the most heroic thing you can right. try to do is help her breathe with his – like, what? That's Because that's, that's extreme. That's yeah. super that's extreme. extreme. So, so right no away, one even tries that. Right away <laughs> – so yeah, so right, right away with the stuff of the storm and with this contrived death they set up for her, it seemed to be the culmination of a series of stupid decisions, any one of which should never have happened. I was like, okay, this, this – I, I can't take this movie seriously. So am I going to get a goofy, fun adventure ride? And I, I didn't feel I got that either. It's not Piranha. Exactly. It's not Piranha. Like if Piranhas had showed up in the cave or crazy bat people or aliens, I would have been okay with this stuff during the setup in the beginning. You know, if you want to magically set up cascading failures so you can get me into some over-the-top adventure, that's fine. But if you want me to take yeah. it seriously as people who know what they're doing – who are competent, who can sur- try to survive in these difficult situations, like J- James Franco in 127 Hours Later. If you want to set it up like this, you- you've failed completely. You've showed me stupid people doing stupid things to get themselves into stupid, deadly situations. Uh, and that-, that killed it for me. None of the caves are very distinctive either. A lot like of... In the para- go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, in, the, in Piranha, you see a cave, and it, it has a certain look to it. I mean, it doesn't look real, but it looks like... You'll remember what it looks like after the movie, but in this, it's, they're all... It certainly looks more like a cathedral than that cave does. <laughs> what, is, what is that? Is that just size, or what else is it? It's Marvel? colors, and it's all those cool egg sacks full of Piranha alien <laughs> creatures. Those are good decorations. you got to have some of those in your cave, because that's like stained glass. Now, now, Dingus, now I've, I've sort of droned on at length about why the whole thing I hated. Defend it a little bit, because you seem to sort of enjoy that adventure ride part of it, yeah? Uh, I really did, uh, because I really enjoyed uh, what, the, the, uh, what my imagination did with the obstacles. And I was really interested, because I know you're a diver, 
<laughs> and I wanted to hear what you had to say about that as related to this. And, um, and especially with the scene where uh, Frank has to teach Victoria right away how to dive. Because she's like, I'm not going to be a diver. Fuck all of this. I, I can't do it. I just can't do yeah, it. What's she doing there? That's another and, joke. And, and he's saying, you can do it because you must do it. And he's teaching her. He's doing this little, if you can swim and breathe, you can dive. Uh, first rule of diving is uh, don't hold your breath. And he's kind of running through this. And then all of a sudden we have George making a joke about getting the clap in Mexico, which why? why? Uh, but I, I was curious what you would have to say about the diving. Um, because those the, the types of obstacles, that, uh, the loss of, of light, any, any of that type of stuff, uh, really captures my imagination and really excited me, uh, and so that kept me going uh, a lot. Uh, so it's interesting. Tom's to me like to Frank. You, well, it, it is interesting to me to, me to hear you talk uh, about like the extra the extra um, thing that people would have on their on their suit to help somebody uh, buddy breathe with them, because I think in in another movie that captured your imagination more. Uh, and I've heard you say this before about other technical issues. You're willing to overlook those if, if the writing is good enough. Right, right. Uh-huh. And here, instead of being able to focus on the characters and writing, you're talking, you're you're looking at the technical stuff, and and that's going to take you out of it. And part of that was out of boredom too. Like I, I right. just wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't along for the ride. And Tom couldn't watch the news this in this movie like he could during Green. <laughs> that's Hour. right. There were no screens in the background behind my attention. Mm-hmm. Well, I liked Richard Roxburgh so much um, that I went along for a lot of that. And and again, in my imagination, the idea of being in that space uh, and in that world and all of a sudden not having any light was fascinating to me. Uh-huh. I don't think they did anything particularly interesting with it, except that that sort of we're running out, we're running out, we're running out. Oh, here's Chekhov's boar's tooth thing. Um, so... Well, but but the, but a lot of that was enough to make me feel like there's 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 an adventure movie here somewhere. Tom, this is a, based on a true story, so all the mistakes you're saying they made, I think they know what they're talking about a little more than you do. Well, do you know? Story. I just know, you know the true story is just the writer getting lost in a cave. Like <laughs> the writer was, he got he went into his driveway one day and it was raining. Was, oh, I gotta call, I gotta call a cab. <laughs> He's taking a bath actually. Yeah, he's, he's on his way to a pitch meeting about. A movie called The Bathtub. If I'm not mistaken, it was the the writer was just caving, and the the way that they had come in got got closed off, so they had to find another way out. Uh, and he had to kill his son. Uh, <laughs> change it. So, yeah. But see that well, see that was a point too early on where I'm like, okay, this is going to be a cool survival drama. This whole idea, and uh, don't they even imply that Victoria's a mountain climber? Doesn't the, the rich millionaire say something to her about what would what would you do in this situation after Richard Roxburgh has to drown his? Why is she so retarded then? She well, that's that. what's awesome is that she's set up as this as this badass character. You're right, Tom. He asks her, "What would you do when when um oh, on the when climb, Frank yeah. when Frank brings the body back?" And she says, "There's nothing you can do for for a dead person or for a body at altitude. I would leave. I would leave her." And someone and so, that sharp. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Then she won't wear the what's right. <laughs> no, but your your point is absolutely right. Someone that sharp should be a more badass character, or at least more competent. And instead, she instead she just turns into fuck. No, I'm not doing that. Right. I'm not going to wear the bodysuit. So then she fine. goes. She goes. Tell me what to do, Frank. And he's telling her. Yeah, wear the wetsuit. That's what I'm telling you what to do. 
<laughs> but that's her retort. Like, no, I'm not going to wear the wetsuit. Uh, but that's such an yeah. intriguing moment. You know, what, what would you do? What would you have done on Everest? And she says, there's nothing to do for body at altitude. Yeah. And you get the feeling like, oh, okay, she's going to be like, not Vasquez, but she's going to be somebody who we can count on and and somebody who's going to be valuable if we, if we lose her. And instead, she just turns into a whining. I mean, it's just awful. Well, and that to me is what, you, you know, if you're not going to do an over-the-top cliffhanger or piranha kind of thing, that to me is what makes these survival dramas interesting. Right. Realism. When, when characters who are competent have to make difficult decisions, right. and movies like, like Touching the Void, like North Face, 127 Hours, that's what they're about, is we meet these characters, we discover how competent they are, things go wrong, as they will, uh, and now they make tough choices. Now, when when you're introducing a character as competent, and if you're going to have things go wrong because the characters have made really stupid, whiny decisions about not wanting to wear a dead woman's wetsuit or something, you completely, I think, subvert what makes these survival dramas interesting. Um, you know, you're, you're just giving us cardboard cutouts to throw into a dilemma that you've contrived. And I, I don't care about your cardboard cutouts. So at least show me a gory death scene or something. Right. Uh, See, at least Piranha did that. Yeah. <laughs> Piranha is a far better survival drama than, yeah. than Sanctum. Uh, I, I will say, so uh, I, I don't watch trailers, but what really got my imagination about Sanctum is I accidentally looked up at the end of the trailer and saw the scene where the kid is having to suck the air bubbles out of the roof of the, the, the flooded cave. Um, yeah. Which they that wound up trailer. being a big fucking red herring. Oh my god, yeah. But uh, That's the uh, use they made of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But that captured my imagination. When I saw that, I was like, holy cats, imagine you know, you're trapped underwater. Yeah. You're used to breathing out these little air bubbles that have trapped in Yeah, the- that's him ten feet from the end of the movie. Right. Like, <laughs> oh, I wonder what this air tastes like. He's like luxury <laughs> sampling. That's so annoying. And that's so contrived, too. Like, when you when you think about the, the narrow... The, just how narrow that window is for how long a person can hold his or her breath. And right. that that's the, that's how far he can get after using what's left from the rebreather after sucking the, the air out of that bottle. And then, you know, it's such a magically contrived moment. It, it, it really is as far as a setup, it's right up there with the aliens bringing Ed Harris to the surface, as far as just how silly that is for how you're going to resolve. It's ASX Machina. In yeah. That case. It's just, it's a miracle of timing. You know, right when he would have run out of breath and died, oh, look, after all of this, yeah. so many days through the cave, that's how long it took him to get to the exit. Yeah, and the dad goes, never give up. Like, it's going to be like, oh, it's going to be balls to the, like, one time twenty hours is a never give up, but like, he doesn't even reach the never give up phase, does he? When uh, is he never, when is he on the verge of giving up? <laughs> has he? Just, uh, yeah, I don't know, yeah. Uh, well, see, the thing is, like, if this had been, like, a real movie, if this wasn't such a silly movie, then I think it would have forced us to consider that if the dad hadn't been killed, they both would have died. You know, that's the kind of dilemma that, that I think we should, that we should be shown, that if the father hadn't died right there, if they'd been both breathing off of that air bottle, they both would have died. But you did consider that because you just came up with it, and I thought of it too. So what do you? I don't think the movie had anything. The movie did not acknowledge that. 
Oh, okay. The movie just has him uh, swimming out of the, you know, bursting out of the surface, conveniently near some tourists. Right. Uh, And there's there's no acknowledgement of the fact that they were both going to die. Um, Right. Basically, you know what? The millionaire saved them. The millionaire saved their lives by killing the father. By by, (laughs) By randomly diving into the water on his own (laughs) for some reason. Well, that was that was another thing. I guess that was his like guilty suicide or something. I don't know. No, that guy wasn't a suicide. No, that was because he had seen the end of sunshine and he wanted it to turn out better. Hmm. <laughs> uh, also, do you guys know who uh, uh, Carol Rodin is, the the Czech actor? No. Ah, no. Uh, Dingus, you know him from. Uh, he was in Running Scared. He's the abusive father who loves John. Oh. Um, I love that guy, and I, I was convinced throughout the movie that 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 I was watching Carol Rodin doing an Australian accent. Uh, I had no idea this was Richard Roxburgh. Uh, do you guys now know who he is? He looks like Richard Roxburgh. No? Yeah, I do now. I kept thinking of the guy from The Square and thinking, no, 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 that's not him. That's not him. Stop thinking that. I thought of Max von Sydow. <laughs> an Australian one. Now, how about if this had been a found footage film? Uh, that's your answer to everything, but it's always the it is. Answer. But but I want to start talking about 3D, and I'm wondering if that'll get us into it. Uh, I don't even remember the. Th- I saw it in 3D. Uh, let's see what I didn't. I'm on strike. Never again. Dingus, Fuck did you, you see it in 3D? Yeah. Nah. yeah. I thought you had to because it's called 3D Sanctum, and I figured that yeah. On to. my on the marquee for mine, it just said Sanctum D. So if you're not seeing 3D, it's just D. <laughs> Sanctumed. <laughs> Uh, why did you love the 3D dingus? Did it restore your uh, your, your your faith in 3D filmmaking? Do you really want me to rant about this? <laughs> I I can't yeah. stand having you know again. I've got the active glasses from the ArcLight, so they're powered glasses. So it's like having a brick on my face on top of my glasses. And uh, and again, I've said this time and again, except for um, that that great uh, Resident Evil movie we saw last year and um, <laughs> and How to Train Your Dragon. I just don't need to see it with. If I have to wear these glasses, I don't care. It's like watching a movie with a brick sunglasses on my face. I and every watch time more. I look around, it's just oh, it's driving me crazy. It, and I don't think it adds all that much. I really it, don't. It seemed to me that their their main use of the 3D was to just every now and then waft bubbles up in the foreground, right? Mm. Underwater scenes, right? Uh, mm. Foreground there bubbles. Some, yeah. There were some foreground birds at one point too. Yeah. And I guess, but. You love that Chase Kelly. That made quite an impression on you. Yeah, the gerbil. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, did you watch? You watched it in 3D, Tom. Did it? It didn't do anything for you, right? No, I mean, 3D in dark, murky conditions is the worst possible conditions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it might have added some layers as far as the caves were concerned, but it's just not worth the payoff. I mean, why can't they, I mean it? It is worth it to them because they're getting a lot more money. I mean, I paid fifteen bucks a ticket for this freaking thing. Uh, so it's and there's not one money shot with the 3D because I couldn't think of one. I didn't see in 3D, but afterwards I was like, what would have been in 3D in this movie besides bubbles? There's not one. I guess it did give some layers to the underwater stuff, maybe. But yeah, no, I, I'm with you, Kelly. One like there's nothing that really made this when the rocks came out that one part no but when the helicopter's flying at the beginning it definitely looks like 3D. Uh, yeah but but who cares so, <laughs> it has nothing to do with the story. Right. Mm, the story by the way i don't know if you guys knew this but apparently papua new guinea 
is the last primeval wilderness on the planet. <laughs> what was up with that dude Kelly mentioned, that tribal dude? What was up with that? I thought they were surely going to do something where right. early yeah. on, you know, you have the the mad prophet who says, don't go in the cave. Yeah. And the prophecy is true. Yeah, exactly. And they, <laughs> they didn't even give that guy any lines. Yeah. Uh, He's just looking around like, what time is it? Does anybody know? <laughs> That's right. We don't have time. Did you guys catch the wizard? Uh, That's not a wizard. <laughs> really? Come on. Oh, during this, this CG, the little uh, CG presentation of the cave. Oh. When George is, there, there really was a wizard. And George has the quick, that's not a wizard line. When they go, th- oh, come on. Are you serious? That might have been. That might have been my favorite part of the movie next to the kid announcing that the cave was flooding. Uh, <laughs> Did you catch the, little... the Star Wars line? Uh, I probably tuned it out. What was the Star Wars line? What the hell are you, either are you talking about? So first of all, let me tell Kelly Wand. During the yeah, CG presentation <laughs> of the cave, when they're yeah. doing the CG fly-through, at one point, George, who's apparently made this, has put a little wizard off to the side. I mean, it's, it's literally, it just flashes by. And but as it flashes by, he says that's not a wizard. He's put what? a wizard in there, and he's calling. What do you it, mean a wizard? What are you talking about? A, a man like a, a cartoon. Yeah, like yeah. a Gandalf dude. Like an animated air freshener mascot. No, it's a pointy-hatted, robed, bearded dude with a staff. I think you, you just see a flash of him. Hmm. Neither of you caught this. Are you serious? Really? Seriously? Seriously? Really? Seriously? Seriously? What's, he, really? what's that line mean? If it's a wizard, why is he saying it's not a wizard? I because think I heard him say that and went, oh, I don't care what anybody's saying. <laughs> Nothing means anything. It's 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 ironic humor, because it was a wizard, you see. But why would he say that? Because he put it in there, and he's having to make a quick excuse for it when it flies. But why by. would he put it in there? Because he's, then... he's wacky. Uh, and he's like totally... Donald- He's totally macking on her the whole time, and boyfriend doesn't care. That's not a wizard. Uh, okay, give me the Star Wars. What's the dingus. Star Wars line, Dingus? Yeah, Tom's confused the fuck out of me. Okay, it's when Jude's and um, Frank are going down toward the restriction. Uh, and Jude's, by the way, um, if you need to pick me up after watching this film, just look at the IMDb picture of, uh, I think her name is Allison uh, Cratchley. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you made that up. That's a character from Harry that, Potter. That cannot be that actress's thing. Oh, it is. Actually, <laughs> yeah. Look at her picture. Uh, so anyway, yeah. um, when she's following him, I think he he asks if she's back there, and I think she says, "I'm on your six And I I almost oh, am right. sure she, she says, says "Red, red leader. leader." Yeah, yeah. right. You're right. Uh, I noticed that, and I was like, "I'll bet Dingus is gonna love that." Yeah. Oh, shut up! You did Wait, not. She's super hot on IMDb. <laughs> the blonde one. Yeah. Give me that Rower. She's she's that's not a bad picture on IMDb. Wait, that was Jude's. Yeah. I loved her. I thought she was really good. I thought she had a certain uh, gravity to her. She had to do ridiculous things, like say, "Are we going to do this?" or just talk about it. They and, pushed her uh, out. Compared to IMDb, just saying. well, she just looked weary, and uh, and you know I liked that that idea. Um, although Tom's really blown it out of the water, I think. Uh, Get it? So <laughs> um, that whole I, I loved it when she said, uh, "Will you help us with with the with I don't know with with the breather or something?" My legs are stuffed, 
I liked little things like that. I, I loved um, I love little isms like that when, when like when Frank says I, I'm no good at, I'm no good up there. Full stop. I love those feelings of like somebody speaking in Australian or something. My legs are stuffed. Um, but but I really liked her, and I was really sad to see her go, especially in in, in such a a contrived way. If they could have found a, a decent way to to have that scene take place instead of a hose popped off and and like Tom said, and he knows diving, and I don't. All I could sit there and think was, you guys didn't think of anything like this beforehand. You, there's no contingency for this. Really? Well, and also how she reacts too. Like I. Uh, First of all, yeah, like, I don't know if maybe it was because they're not using conventional air tanks. They're using things called rebreathers. When you normally go diving, uh, you just have a tube through which you inhale. And then when you exhale, you're just blowing bubbles out into the water. Uh, now, what a rebreather does is, I don't know if you guys know this, but when you exhale, you know, you breathe in oxygen and you exhale carbon dioxide. Air what about is- smoke? Air is a mixture of both oxygen and carbon dioxide. When you exhale, there's still plenty of oxygen in what you're exhaling. Like that's why mouth-to-mouth resuscitation works partly is because you're not just exhaling pure carbon dioxide, of course. So what a rebreather does is it's got one tube that you breathe into, and then when you exhale, a valve uh, brings the air back into the system, scrubs some of the carbon dioxide out of it, and then cycles it through. So I, I was thinking maybe you don't have it. It's not that easy to have an extra mouthpiece, but I, I still can't imagine. I've never used They it. don't say that. Yeah, I can't imagine. There's no reason that if, if an extra mouthpiece is standard equipment in any diving rig, like anybody is always going to have an extra mouthpiece for, for, for your buddy, for anybody on the dive with you. So I can't imagine a rebreather wouldn't have that, but that's part of what I was wondering is maybe they don't have it because it's a rebreather. But, but more importantly, you know, when things go wrong, divers know how to work together, and they just magically have her flip out. Uh, yeah, and that's so. That, and she wasn't. They didn't like before. She wasn't acting a flipped out. Like you go, oh wait, that guy's conspiring or something because she didn't seem tense. Am I wrong? I, well, she was so exhausted. I mean, I think that's part of what they were trying to set the table with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're 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 set. They try to set it up, but it's really stupid. You don't just because you're tired, you don't flip yeah. out when you're There's a nothing diver. And diving in a cave, by the way. That is serious hardcore diving. That's right. right. And why are they in a hurry? Just because a billionaire wants them to be done in a week? Like, there's nothing at stake. Like, what's the point? Right. Because like, Frank's a, a maverick and he wants to push them. In addition to being an awesome survivalist, he's also a maverick. characters dumb and it's, they deserve to die then. Like, if they're willing to. This well, is why the pea oil spill happened. <laughs> well. Were there were there any images you guys really grooved on at all? Were there were there a couple things where you said, "Oh wow, that's a great image." See, part of what killed it for me early on is it really felt green screeny. Like some of the early stuff with the big cave opening uh, just felt just so gratuitous. That that shot where they, you know, the place where they find the Japanese tank with the, in that sort of cathedrally air that dome area with the hole in the top, it just looked like something out of a Star Wars prequel movie. I mean, all of uh-huh. that. I just thought it looked terrible. Um, so I, you know, I liked the idea of like coming into that big open area and looking up at the top and knowing that air bell is up there. Some of that looked cool. Uh, but like Kelly Wan was talking about the, the caves later, just I didn't have much personality. Um, yeah, which is weird because they had the, they had the awesome James Cameron camera and they didn't use it. But I, did, yeah. did anything come to mind for, for you, Kelly? Like, were there any images that really stuck out for you? Besides the, the dude's butt? 
Well, and the girl was scantily clad. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> is that true? Do you take a space blanket on your... Uh, and why is it called that if they use it in caves and not space? They wouldn't use a... You know, a blanket wouldn't help you in space, would it, Tom? I'm no scientist, but... I've, I've never be been... Be more use in a cave? Yeah, yeah you big pussy. I'd rather be in space than a cave. Uh, Dingus, were there any images you're thinking of that really grabbed you? Is that answer your question? <laughs> no, the space blanket was pretty uh, enthralling, I thought. In space, no one can Good hear Good use of the fusion camera on that space blanket scene. Definitely. Uh, this isn't a particularly stunning visual image, but I really liked that decompression chamber they first went by that, that random girl Liz was in. Uh, I, I like the idea of that. It was just such an interesting image for me. And then, uh, for as bad as the scene was before it, to see Frank in that, you know, having to decompress while um, Jude's is outside, just you know, floating. I just liked that chamber, and and the whole issue of decompression was fascinating to me. And I really wanted to to figure this out: why why it is that George gets the bends and nobody else does, or or why it is that. Um, Frank says, let's go up and look at that, that air bell or whatever it is, that, that area up there, that, the sanctum, I guess. Um, and she says, do you want to decompress for an hour? Uh, but, but when they come through, they all just go right up to it. And why one guy gets the bends and another guy doesn't. I mean, this is kind of the Michael Bean thing from The Abyss. Uh, I have no understanding of the science of this, uh, and I wish I did because I really liked that little decompression Thing. Decompression is it's a matter of when you're breathing uh, pressurized air, it basically uh, dissipates nitrogen into your tissue that doesn't belong there and that can screw you up. So decompression is just as you are coming up to, to lesser depths, you basically have to stop and let that nitrogen dissipate out of your tissue. Because if it gets trapped in there, bad things can happen. Uh, like in Outland, huh, Tom? Uh, not quite that bad. Uh, <laughs> like in Total Recall, huh, Tom? Not quite that bad either. <laughs> Although like I did. in scanners, huh, Tom? I, I actually, so this freaked me out. I, I had a, a dive instructor once who, who talked had about you. somebody panicking and shooting up to the surface. And when they got to the guy, and this is so gross. I mean, this is just why I remember this, just the image this of this. This is why I don't dive. <laughs> here, here it comes, Kelly Wand. When they got to the guy, his eyeballs were in his mask. I know. Well, that's fine. They just push him back in. <laughs> well, they, well, why does it happen to just one dude and not to everybody else? Well, decompression. So if you're not down there a long time, uh, you don't have to decompress. Like if you've been down there, if you've been breathing pressurized air, pressurized air for a long time, the nitrogen gets into your tissue. You need to Did that guy live. So no, he died. George, no. you're talking about? No, the eyeball guy you're talking. Oh, about. no, no. Oh, well, you know what? I actually don't remember what drew told me i, I that that's sort of the part of the story that stuck in my head and i didn't remember his eyeballs made it right yeah i'm, I'm assuming that that if you have if if the the if, if you've had such violent decompression in your system that your eyeballs have popped out of your skull that might be one of the lesser problems i mean what it does to your lungs <laughs> so no i'm assuming that, yeah. what are your symptoms uh, <laughs> uh, okay so so it it's only because George is super susceptible. Oh, right, right. So as for George's symptoms, yeah, I, I think the idea, and I don't know about the long-term effects of it. I just know that if you've ever gotten, if you've blown it, if you've gotten the bends, you you shouldn't be diving anymore. I, I think that's the conventional oh. system. 
just because you're you're just going to be that much more susceptible to to the effects of it. So when they show the rash on him, I do, I don't know if that was scientific. Uh, like I don't I don't really know the science behind this idea. Based that, on a true story. But I don't know this idea that that, that like Ben's is like malaria, <laughs> like you know. Well, George mentions mentions earlier that he's retired from this, and and I guess that must be why. Because right. and Frank says if you fizz up on me again, you're of no use to me. Ah, uh, fizz up, Tom. Does that what divers say? I had never heard that one. That must be an Australian. Right. Mm. Oh, so the idea is that if if it happens once, then you're cashed. Right. Cashed. What's that mean? That's an Australian, Tom, uh, an Australian term. I know you're mad at me for the passage, but you should read The Descent by Jeff Long. It's mountain climbers or cave climbers, and they find hell. <laughs> Spoiler. Oh, no. I've, what else did the guy write that wrote The Descent? Isn't he? Uh, he wrote a zombie it? thing. Oh, did you read it, though? No, no. I've heard of it. I, for some reason, oh, I thought good. it was a Dan Brown novel. <laughs> no, he's kind of Dan Browny. He doesn't like. I don't know. It doesn't use very many big words, but it's it's better than the passage. I apologize. I want to get. We got to get past the passage in our lives. Okay, we'll bring that up on the book podcast. I don't. I don't mind you, by the way. I, I have no beef with someone recommending to me a book that I don't like. You know, you're not. You're not in the doghouse like you were for spoiling Buried for everyone. See, come on. It's called Buried. <laughs> Um, does anybody know, uh, Tom, you would be the only one in this podcast who would, is I have control a diving thing, a caving thing, do you know? Uh, I don't, but I, I like that, you know, divers have to communicate using hand signals. Uh, and early on, when they had the big old full face masks, I was like, okay, well, that's a cheat you got to do for a movie, because you, you have, have to show... Self-lit, yeah. Right, right. You have to show the whole actor's face. Has to be, you know, if they're going to be talking, there's that whole thing with communicating underwater. But I noticed when they had the face masks on, they were still doing hand symbols, the little hand signs. And I was like, why are you doing hand signs mm. to say that to someone? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I don't know about the I have control. I, I've never heard of uh, what was that in reference to? Was it? Wasn't it about the? Well, it was. It was used twice. It was used. Um, as a knowing uh, aside from Ian Grunfeld when he was flying the helicopter, and he said it to Josh, he says, "I have control," and and you're like, "Why did you say that?" It just was so odd. But then when Josh was going to do the traversal of that meat grinder weird pool that he had to go across before what's her name got her hair caught and got scalped, he said to his dad, "I have control." Ah, right, right. And it seemed to be sort of either a caving or a diving or something like that, meaning, uh, you know, you can let me go now uh, thing. I, I didn't know. I'm assuming it's a mountain climbing thing, maybe, because it's not a diving thing. I don't think you, all right. first of all, I can't say that when you're underwater and nobody, like, has control. Well, the thing that I, in that meat grinder scene, and this is indicative of how bored I was with the stupid movie, <laughs> I was fascinated in that meat grinder scene with whatever that weird little bracket thing was that he had. That you stick yeah. to a crevice and then you yank the the cord and it, it expands out and grabs onto the rock. I at that point in the movie, I wanted to know more about that thing than I wanted to know about whether or not they were going to survive. <laughs> That's called a scupula. Mm, you made that up, Kelly Wan. That sounds like uh, something from uh, that Dead movie. Dead Jeremy Irons plays Twia. <laughs> That's gross, <laughs> Kelly Wan. I apologize. <laughs> Dead Ringers is based on a true story. 
Hold on. One, two, three, not only you and me. Really? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no, no. No, come on. That's weak. Why not? Because that's not good enough. That's not a good enough line for that. that you gotta earn that. <laughs> There's so much you could have done with caves. Well, how long are we supposed to wait for you to make a cave joke? Wait, wait, wait. wait. Go back to Allison Cratchit and have the music ready. Or is that possible? <laughs> wait, wait, let's hear it. Say something about Allison Cratchit. So, uh, Juge is played by Allison Cratchley. Uh, my dingo would eat her baby. One, two, three, not only you and me, got 180 no, I just feel dirty. Oh, here's the song. Make love to you because that's smooth. Like a Tom, it should have Sarlacc in it. This movie. I was thinking that with that terrible scene. You know what it is. I was like, looked like a space slug should fly out of there. I mean, wait, what? No, you Ooh. know what? See, see, you were talking about a sarlacc. I was talking about a, the space slug that chases yeah, uh, Millennium Falcon. So, so I am going to defend myself by saying that you thought you you had just yeah, called right, me out yeah. for my Star Wars knowledge, and I got something wrong. So, well, you know more Star Wars than I do, so you're actually a dumbass. Boss. <laughs> All right, dude, this, is your, this is your three by three, Dingus. Tell us what we're doing. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I forget. Uh, what were you doing? Oh, it's hiding things. Mm. I bet you guys loved this one, given your response to it last week. I have an awesome one. I have one good one, which is pretty good for three. Yeah, yeah that's great, Kelly. It's it's yeah. your top three. Uh, you know, I think I, I talked about it as uh, as hiding place. I haven't listened to it, but uh, it's your your top three hiding places. But I was I was just I'm just fascinated with with characters. Uh, hiding things and then and then finding them and using them or keeping them hidden just the idea of of having a hiding place or having an object hidden and i think what i said last week was uh, i'm not talking about conceptual things like my feelings and my heart have been hidden from you but actual actual objects that have been hidden and tom and kelly both helpfully took off star wars things uh, and i thank you both for that good there's hearts hidden in the saw movies Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going first because I am introducing next week's 3x3. Three three. Uh, my number three favorite hiding place is Val Kilmer's testicles. Oh, you jerk. Why, was that one of yours, Dingus? No, it was a runner-up. Okay, uh, because that's where he hides the gun in uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Dingus, can you mm. give us a line from that? A line from what? What are you talking about? About the Oh, that's my favorite line. I meant to look right. it up, but I know you're you you're you would be ready with it. You're right. I I, I shot him with a small revolver I keep near my balls. <laughs> You've seen that, right, Kelly Wand? Uh, yeah. Of, of course he has. He chose it as his one of his favorite voiceovers for fourth uh, wall. I'm not sure which. Uh, it's true, Kelly Wand. You can count on me. <laughs> oh, do we, actually, do we actually see the revolver? We don't, do we? Oh, no, no, he pulls it out. Doesn't he pull out the revolver afterwards? Yeah, because Robert Downey Jr. says something about, I thought maybe that was a thing that you guys had. <laughs> Referring to Val Kilmer being gay. And, and after he sees the gunfire erupt from Val Kilmer's crotchal region. 
Uh, oh. That's a great little bit in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So, all right, they're all great bits. There, there are a lot of great bits in there. Uh, There's not much to say about these. This topic, like once you say what it is, it's like, yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of all right. Yeah. Thank you. All right, so but that's my okay. number three. Uh, Kelly, one, what's your number three? This one's kind of boring. You have to wait till my number one to care about things I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. My number three, uh, it's kind of a shitty movie, but in Inside Man, the Spike Lee movie. Oh, Clive good. Owen, good. I like this one. I thought that was, it was like an awesome twist, right? Yeah. It's, uh, at the Actually, beginning, you think he's talking to you, breaking the fourth wall, and he says he's stuck somewhere, and you think he's in prison. And then at the end, you find out where he really is. It's a good one, and that's one we can't talk about, too, because that's an awesome bit. Yeah. Okay, so my number three is something I won't spoil for you. (laughs) But the movie's not even worth seeing. Like, that's the only good thing about that movie that I remember. Oh, really? You didn't like Inside Man? Uh, The Jodie Foster character didn't make any sense to me. I didn't know what the fuck her deal was. I didn't know why she was there. It was a little odd, but uh, I didn't. It didn't. Did it ruin? And who was the other guy? Who's like the third? Who's the hypotenuse of the triangle? Denzel. Denzel, right? There's scene together. That scene wasn't good, was it? Maybe no. It was he great. he really wasn't. I mean, he's not as good as he is in Pelham One Two Three Action. What? Are you being serious, Dingus? I am. He's really good in in a really bad movie, and I didn't I didn't care for him in Inside Man. See, I guess that's the other Denzel Washington train movie I need to see. Yeah, it's the other Tony Scott train movie you need right. to see. Uh, All right, so uh, Kelly Wan's number three is uh, something we can't tell you about in Inside Man. Uh, Should I just say it? I feel like a dumbass. Oh, no, not being... it's good. It's, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's. Uh, I'm always in trouble for giving shit away, so now I'm just not going to say anything. It's, 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 it's perfect for us, and it's perfect for for the listeners. I think that I think that in this case, you've done exactly enough. If you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, you don't care what I'm talking about. So it's a lose lose. I mean, you should win-win. see it. I would say. There you go. Just for that one thing, and then go. Oh, that. All right, yeah, great. I would agree with Tom. I think it's a. I think it's good. I think there are things that are flaws about it, but I think it's definitely worth seeing. All right. I mean, it's almost. It's like a. You know, it's like a good twist and a. Okay. You guys like that movie more than I do, I guess. Or I'm in... I don't know. I think it's the last Spike Lee movie I saw. Was that before or after Bamboozled? (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, Anyway, that's... All right, what is your number three favorite hiding place? All right, I'm going to give you a little bit of dialogue. I like that. I love it when Dickus acts. There we go. You got any money on you? A lot. I hate it when he does his quotes, though, because they're always so fucking obscure. Never know what the hell he's talking. Could be from any movie. I don't think I've seen this movie. Because Tom's too good at guessing, and I'm an idiot. There's no balance. All right, this is the... No, I'm not going to give you another quote. This is the weakest of the lot. I've used this film before. It's uh, it's from a little movie from 1988 called Midnight Run. Uh-huh. And um, <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, you know, I was trying here. I'm I'm fascinated by this subject, and I realize it's kind of a difficult one to 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 deal with. Uh, but I was really fascinated by the idea of, of characters hiding thing for a long period of time, especially kids. And I had a really hard time coming up with that. I, I only came up with two that were useful. Um, and this this third one is different um, because I came up with a number of of uh, 
things that were weapons or things that weren't quite objects. And I wanted to kind of veer away from those because I, I really like the idea of, of things that are hidden and there's something that that is meaningful for the character later on. Like there's a bonding moment or something. And so um, in Midnight Run, uh, uh, Charles Grodin's character, Jonathan Mardukas, has, uh, says when they're on this, this cross-country trip that he's got a lot of money on him. And at the end, it, that turns out to be true because he's got this – this belt full of money that he hands over to uh, to Jack Walsh, uh, Robert De Niro's character, and um, and I just I I love the uh, the bonding moment between them because um, I think in a, in a lesser movie this would be used as a Deus Ex Machina because all through this this film the characters are constantly under, under the obstacle of we need money we have to find money there's got to be some way we can find money they're scrounging change together and they're doing counterfeit operations and it's just ridiculous and he's and and he never uses the money for that purpose until until the characters fulfill their needs at the end and until jack jack walsh uh fulfills his sort of honorable intention that he has to do and then at at that last moment finally at the at the end of the mo- at the movie when when Jack Walsh has done the noble thing and let him and let him go and is walking away and saying uh, I don't want to talk to you ever again uh, this is it I did what I needed to do goodbye but here's our here and he even gives him his watch here's an here's an here's a here's a memento of our of our venture together then Charles Grodin hands over this this huge cache of money that he's had hidden on his person for the entire film and i just love that that little moment so a money belt yep all right so he hides the money in a money belt isn't that weird he's like why don't you check my money belt for some money no no that wouldn't be there (laughs) but that's not hidden i think it's not yeah if it had just been in his wallet it wouldn't be hidden right or in his shoe, or in his penis, but he put it in the money wallet. Dingus. <laughs> well, speaking of that, uh, my number two is <laughs> is uh, Christopher Walken's butt in Pulp. Ah, good one. Oh, I was afraid oh, somebody I... would do that. But... Why were you oh, afraid? I That's like it. Awesome. Uh, no, I love it. I love it. I love it. It's the best but... part of the movie. <laughs> but you don't get to see it, so it shouldn't count. Oh, oh good lord, I wouldn't want to. Yeah. Uh... Go ahead. Tell us why you love Christopher Walken's butt. <laughs> Yeah, I just love that that monologue. What do you love most about it? I, I love the fact that the the watch is being held up into the foreground as Christopher Walken announces that he has had that uncomfortable hunk of metal in his nether regions for how long does he say? Three years? I forget how long he says he carried it around. Do it. But, do a Christopher Walken impression for us. Come on. Yeah, Tom. I don't think I can. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know. It'll it'll come out sounding okay. Here we go. I had this uncomfortable piece of metal in my butt for three years. See? That's Kangaroo Jack. <laughs> Did you also have a tanker truck up there? Uh, but I love the fact that we it, we are being shown this, and we're being given this bit of information about it that makes it kind of really <laughs> gross and icky, and that still the young Bruce Willis like immediately reaches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Roger Avery. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Killing Zoe. Killing Zoe is uh, underrated. Have you seen Killing Killing Zoe? Kelly one. No, I like the one with uh, the Rules of Attraction though. That movie's kind of good. That's that's more Brett Brett Easton. Isn't that a Brett Easton Ellis novel? Yeah, I didn't read it. 
You should see Killing Zoe. That's all Roger Avery. Uh, all right. Isn't that? Oh yeah, yeah. I have seen it. Eric Stoltz. The yeah, bank yeah. It's the Eric Stoltz French. Yeah, yeah. That's a good movie. That's I have seen it. I was thinking of the show with Zoe in the title. Never mind. <laughs> Do you know what Zoe means? Life. And also that Coppola Zoe part of New York stories. See, my mind's changing. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Zoe. Oh god. <laughs> What's that? Is that called Finding Zoe or something? That sounds about right. Yeah. So Killing mm-hmm. Zoe, get it? Killing Life, get it? Ah, very good, Dingus. I know Neo means new from Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Kevin, what's your number two favorite hiding spot in a movie? All right, this one's cool, but the number one I'm really proud of. I would Number one, I'm very excited to share with you. Um, but number two, I'm not. It's... Uh, the escape pod in Alien for Alien, because the alien's hiding in it, and you see the alien, and everyone in the audience sees it, but Ripley doesn't see it, and there's, like, no music cue. Like, he's hidden in plain view. I'm calling him in a he for this. Do you know what I'm talking about? At Where he's just, he looks like the pipes. Like, he's just... Yeah! There. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that that had to have been in script form at one point, and it's like, she walks past the alien... It's in the pipes. She doesn't see it. Now, the alien is famously based on some, uh, you know, the concept and the the basic artwork is by H.R. Giger. But isn't that, was that Stan Winston who did the first alien, the practical effects? Do you I don't know. know. Okay. Because, yeah, whoever translated Giger's concept art uh, did a fantastic job. I think it must have been Stan Winston. Can you imagine that scene being made now in any movie? CG. No, no, but, like, the, it being that obvious to see but the character and like no music cue like oh the alien's there like it's up to you to see it right. and like you you're smarter than the character is there would normally be some ominous soundtrack or something to announce it yeah, yeah. and why is it sleeping see it's hiding she wakes it up with some smoke or something right you could just grab her right there and the movie could be over yeah right but it doesn't why tom why <laughs> did it one in the cat, if you know what I'm saying. Who knows what that alien did? Who knows? Does that count? It's not a hiding place. Oh, that's a good hiding in plain sight. Those are ones I wanted to think of and couldn't really. Come. I had a different number too. We'll see if you guys do it. And then I went. No, this one's cool. Tom will like it. I like you your number two. Dingus, don't you like his number two? I, I like it a lot. What's the object that's hidden? The alien. Yeah. yeah. Alien tucked. It's sort of. It, it's. It's almost more. It's camouflage, kind of. It's uh, like, and she barely gets on board that thing at the last second. So that's how they, like, the alien just went in there to sleep. Right, the right. <laughs> You learn a lot about the alien psychology in that scene. I don't know. I'm, I'm an idiot. No, I should pick you know, no Kelly Wan, that's, that's the funny thing about Alien that I don't think people realize. Alien was such vintage 70s filmmaking as far yeah. as the way that, that stuff was not punctuated uh, the way yeah, everything's so broad you know. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I, I think Alien was like the last great 70s horror movie maybe uh, and I've never seen that kind of thing happen in another horror movie where you see it but you have to be kind of sharp to see it like the dumbass wouldn't see the alien there they did there, there are a couple sh- well I say a couple I'm thinking of one specific shot in Aliens, where the Marines are moving around uh, under the reactor, right, a bunch right. of aliens unfurl, 
and they've been there in, in plain view the whole time. It, it it's it seems more like a trick of lighting than. So you think Ripley would be onto that shit by then? <laughs> hard. Yeah. It's hard to tell on those shoulder cams though. And she's then back at the transport. In aliens, like two different aliens get on board that ship after they leave, including a queen. Again, the like aliens they are tricky. That I know, and they never sweep the place, and they never have anything on board that goes, "Oh, you're carrying 1,800 extra pounds of." <laughs> unidentified non-terrestrial that's right there should be a computer that announces that like in sunshine they had him in yeah and in uh sanctum wait no never mind all right that's my number two <laughs> all right Dingus, what is your number two favorite hiding place in movie dumb all right i'm about to give you guys a quote awesome uh, uh. only the discoverer of tutankhamun's tomb would know how she felt upon finding this treasure hidden by a little boy 40 years ago. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> Would know how she felt. That's right. She, a girl. And the narrator must have said it. Huh. Pan's Labyrinth? No, Dude. but it is It is a foreign language film. It's Amelie. Oh, good. Ugh. I know. And this was a runner-up for my sound effects thing. Um, Ugh, God. You know, good luck, you guys. Uh, this is this really. It was really tough for me to choose between my number one and number two because this is one of my favorite things, and this is one of the things that uh, really inspired this category. Because, um, of course, I'm talking here about uh, that tile in her bathroom that accidentally dislodges when the perfume cap rolls across the floor and dislodges it, and she finds this box of keepsakes. The boy hid 40 years ago. And I, just, I have such a place in my heart for kids hiding things. I just find that so fascinating because I was obsessed with that when I was a kid. Uh, you know, finding places to hide things that, that my parents weren't going to find them and that I was going to be able to find them in another time. You know, like not porn. Like just, it, well, like porn, exactly. You know, between the mattresses isn't quite going to work. Um, wow. And I love how... Uh, I love how it pays off in this movie, how the filmmaker shows us the importance of these hidden objects. Um, it's random to us, but specific to the guy, this uh, Bretado guy, Dominique Bretado. Uh, in, in this series of these really quick and clean flashes, these little flashbacks that show us why the contents in this little box that is found and that he hid so long ago successfully. And, and I just love imagining him as this little kid hiding this box behind this tile in this bathroom and then having to move and wondering what, what was the drama in his life? Did he ever think about where these things were and could I ever get them back? And uh, I, I just love that I can be curious about this history and, um, and the history of little hidden things. And the film doesn't really fill me in on that. It just shows me the result of, of later them finding it. Mm. I haven't seen it because I don't see movies about characters who help people. <laughs> it's it the, this movie Kelly Wand is just so schmaltzy. I was going to say precious. <laughs> it is absolutely precious, and that's why I love it. <laughs> Dingus mm. loves precious things. Well, I love that Dingus loves it. I like Dingus's yeah. girlishness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I find it appealing. Uh, and that's fine with me. It, this film is so well put together, and every time I I put it in. I um, 
I I just fall in love with it again. I think it's just so well made and so well constructed. And it is it's, it's precious is a good word because it is like a craft project. It yeah. is like somebody who's doing scrapbooking has put together a movie and or Gollum. Uh, or Gollum or Little Big Planet or something. It's just got this gorgeous, you know, put together quality and I I yeah. So this the, this this hidden thing is a beautiful thing. Isn't that the director of Alien 4, Dingus? Oh yeah. What's sure. the guy's name? I can never not uh, Jeanet, Jeanet, what's his name? Racist. Jean-Pierre Jeanot. Okay. Mm. All right, good. Not so, uh, number two, Amelie. All right, you guys ready for my number one? I'll give you a, a line, I think. I'm going to try uh, this movie. All right, go ahead. Here we go. Look, I know it's going to rain, but can't you guys pour this concrete already? <laughs> mm. Okay, that's definitely his Nicholson. <laughs> Or is Henry Winkler? Is that uh, actually from the movie, or are you just being a jerk? Well, I think there's something... I'm paraphrasing, but I'm pretty sure something along those lines is said. So it's no concrete. It's, it's from the Australian body heat. Am I right? <laughs> Snake eyes. So I really like in a movie when, when somebody's going to do the normal thing that you always expect in a movie, and it goes wrong. Like, here's an example. Uh, in Blood Simple... At one point, uh, someone drives a body out into a field and is going to bury it in his car, and he leaves the lights on as he's burying it, and he buries the body, and he's going to get in the car and drive away, and the car won't start. Uh, now, yeah. fortunately, it does start, and he gets away. But I love when these kind of tropes get subverted in a movie. So in, a, in this Australian kind of crime thriller, which, which I definitely recommend, called The Square, somebody is going to hide a body under a concrete square that's going to be poured like a square, a plaza in a construction project. Uh, and it, it, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But things start happening where the construction project is falling behind schedule. They can't quite pour the concrete in time. Uh, and it, it's one of many sort of plot threads in this movie. Uh, and I, I love that hiding the body under the construction project, which is normally a no-brainer in a, in a crime thriller, uh, kind of gets screwed up in, in this movie. So... Mm. The eponymous square in the square. Things you've seen that, right? Oh, of course, yeah. And, and what's great is that I was, uh, I, w- I was thinking about that film this week, and that didn't even occur to me because my uh, my um, my father-in-law has been asking me for recommendations of films. You know, give me a bunch of things I can throw on my Netflix. And so I looked at, at a bunch of films I'd seen, and I and I was really reluctant. I wasn't sure whether Animal Kingdom would be right for him. Uh, but I figured the square might be, and so I, I said, well, look, here's a couple of films in addition to this whole other list of films from my list and you guys' list and, and otherwise. And so I, I put the square on there thinking, you know, this is a good sort of noirish, body heatish kind of movie, uh, and, and it's a really good movie from a really exciting group of filmmakers. You should see it. And I didn't even think about the whole hiding thing. That's a good call. The square is also good. I think you should see the square before Animal Kingdom because of the groundwork no pun intended, that it lays uh, for Joel Edgerton, an definitely. actor who's crucial in Animal Kingdom and who's such a revelation in the square. He's so good in the square. I remember watching the square thinking, whoa, who, who is that guy? I want to see more movies he's in. Uh, hmm. And that definitely uh, comes into play in a very strong way in, in Animal Kingdom. By the way, the square also has, uh, I hope I'm not going to trump anyone's choice for a list later on, but also has one of the worst hiding places uh, a gangster dude who's married has to hide his dr- his drug money, and he 
he hides it in the laundry room above where his wife is always in the attic above where his wife is always doing the laundry. And I'm like, if you want to hide money from your wife, you probably should maybe the garage where you keep your tools or something rather than where you're forcing her right. to do all the domestic stuff. She's very domesticated, downtrodden, right. uh, rather than above the washer and dryer. So, all right, that's my number one is the square. Uh, Put it with your Charles Bronson DVDs. She won't look there. Right, right, exactly, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you don't want to hide... Put it with your video games. Yeah, you don't want to hide it in with the, you know, the... The, the, the Sex in the City DVDs or right. the Knitting Basket. You know, not right. a good idea. You want to hide it between eggs. Death Hunt and Zapped. Right. <laughs> how, Death Hunt and Zapped. How do you have your DVDs arranged, Kelly? <laughs> Alphabetically. I only have two. He has two. <laughs> Alien, Death Hunt, Zapped. <laughs> All right, Kelly, what's feel- your number one? Because you're, you're excited about this one. I'm expecting yeah. this. What is your number one favorite hiding place from a movie? It's a bit of a leap that I will do a quote from the movie so as to make this last longer. <clears throat> He'd kill us if he got the chance. Oh, good one, Kelly. Because right. I, I was even thinking, because I, I don't know what you're thinking of, because I love the fact that he's looking for the hiding place, but I think never finds it. He does not find it. Yeah, uh, and that's... But okay. This is, that's why this one's a bit of a leap. Okay, Coppola on the director's... Uh, commentary. Say the movie though, by the way, because I think the we conversation, might. one of the greatest movies ever made, uh, right. Ford Coppola's conversation, starring Gene Hackman and Harrison Ford. <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> he's in it. That's true. John Cazal's in it. There was this awesome John Cazal do- documentary on this week. I was kind of like, ah, maybe I want to watch it again. Like every John John Cazal made five movies in there. They were all nominated for Best Picture, but he was never nominated. What's up with that shit? Fucking Oscars. Anyway. Yeah, I almost chose this, but I had... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, what were you going to say? Because you, you didn't know where it was? Dingus no, was going to pick the pen. <laughs> no, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead and do your thing, and I'll talk later. Bug. He's looking for the bug, and at the end of the movie, I'm giving away a great ending, so just stop listening if you haven't seen the conversation. You know what? We've all seen the conversation, right? Yeah. It's been out well, for, what, yeah. maybe five years now. Yeah. yeah, the statute of limitations is up on it. He basically goes nuts looking for it, and the movie ends with the main character going insane because he can't find this bug in his house that he knows is there. And in the director's commentary, Coppola says he thinks that it's in the tuner for the saxophone that he's wearing around his neck. And he didn't look in there. Ah. I don't know where it is, but I thought, no, that's got to be where it is. Thank you, Coppola. <laughs> So you have to listen to a commentary to find that out, as opposed to the Donnie Darko commentary where you learn nothing about what the movie's about. You learn that Jake Gyllenhaal was thinking about pizza. <laughs> Donnie Darko commentary. Uh, Kelly Wan, do you remember French Connection very well? Yeah. Where I do. so I there's that awesome scene in French Connection where they, they impound the guy's car because they think he's got the heroin and they tear it apart looking for the heroin. Do they ever find it? And if so, where is so. heroin? Okay. Uh, I don't think they find it. And remember that movie ends so inconclusively. Yeah. Like in mid-sentence, practically. On a minor note. How do you know that's not my number one, Tom? You've never seen French Connection. Oh, good point. (laughs) Sam Worthington is in it. You wouldn't see it. Yeah, that's true. It's not in 3D, so I wouldn't bother. Well, that's the thing. There's no hiding. Like, I don't think they find... I just... I so vividly remember that scene where they're taking apart every inch of the car. Yeah. 
I thought- Is it covered in the second one? I didn't see the second French Connection. Second one's good, Kelly Wand. You should see the second. I hear it's good. I can't believe I haven't seen it. Is it as good as the first one? Uh, no, no. Hmm. But it's good. I know what it's about. It sounds pretty fucking nuts. It's Frankenheimer, right? Okay. Yep, yep, very good. And not Friedkin? Hmm, interesting. Yeah, let's watch that together, like we watch Tentacles. <laughs> All right, so Kelly Wan's number one is the conversation. Does that one count? Because it's sort of uh, hypothetical. If you picked it's it for still cool. number one, you bet it counts. I consider it cool, and I'm awesome for picking that. Okay. Well, here, well, here's where I need help. I haven't seen the conversation in very many years. And one of the things I wondered uh, in trying to look back was, um, is he? Sh- are we certain as, as, as an audience that there is a bug? Yes. Unless That's- he's gone insane and he's imagining a phone call he gets from Harrison Ford at the end. Because Harrison Ford calls... And proves that they have a bug because he replays like ah oh, that's right this the music coming out of Gene Hackman's the something that, that just happened auditorily in Gene Hackman's house oh okay so he knows it's true unless that conversation's a hallucination which... well I don't see I didn't remember that what I remember from many years ago seeing it is that he one of the things that we're supposed to take away from that is he's ripped his his house apart and maybe it's not even there. But that's not the case. Not based on what we see. Okay. That's not the case. And right. I trust... Uh, but, I mean, Coppola fucks with us, too, because the delivery of Cindy Williams' right. line is delivered differently both times. You, you could definitely argue that there's some unreliable narration going yes, on. Yes, right. there is. But it's all... sound. Well, it's a sound hallucination. That's true. Damn. Fuck. See, this is why 70 movies are so much better than... Than Sanctum. Than Sanctum. <laughs> that is really never going out on a limb there tom <laughs> but the, the days when you could go out and go see something like the conversation randomly like you didn't know what you were gonna see but now never mind you know what i'm saying well like we're living in the end of days there, there's still great no, uh, come on we never gonna happen came again out with 10 of them came up with 10 of them we had a we it had was a- hard though and oh. so mine were shutter island was on my list Favorite movie of the year, Kelly Wan. Think of what a discovery it was when you went and saw King's Speech, your number one movie of 2010. See? Didn't I just make you feel better? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> I am number that, four. My number one is going to be uh, make make you happy as far as uh, holding us up against 70 cinema. R2-D2 and Jedi hit the lightsaber. Oh, damn it, Kelly. Thanks. I think that was taken off the table. Sure. I didn't want to spoil that scene. For I think it's what is your number one since you couldn't pick uh, R2-D2's fuselage. <laughs> <laughs> you really fizzed dirty. out, man. That's so dirty. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. What do you call the outer part of a robot? A chassis. <laughs> That's a the co- framework. That's like his skeleton is his chassis. Well, he's an astromech droid, so his nav ports might be flanneled. <laughs> All right, Dingus, what do you got for us? Get us out of the Star Wars talk stat. All right, here we go with a quote to get us out of the Star Wars talk. Are you guys ready for a quote? Yep, I care. All right, I'm glad you do. Uh, Thanks. Thanks for pulling us back. (laughs) See, Tom's kind of funny sometimes. (laughs) He is kind of funny. Look at him. He hides his funny, though. He's smarter than he is funny. (laughs) Never mind. I'm here. I can hear you. Oh, oh. (laughs) Tough room. All right, Diggins, give us a quote. Let's see how smart I am. Here it is. This was one of my first hiding places. 
Hmm. Lord, Virgin Lord. Suicides. No, it's Amelie again. He's chosen Amelie twice. Uh, yeah, I, I pulled a boner on you guys, and I chose Amelie twice. That's supposed to make me happy? <laughs> I have to hear about this fucking movie again. <laughs> the, uh, the girl helping people? Ugh, all right. uh, Dingus, who delivers the line? This is my favorite hiding place as a, a child or whatever. I tell you what, I'm going to give you a bit of narration from the same movie about this character. Are you ready for that? This movie has a voiceover as well? Yes, it does. Good lord. I know. Ponderous, huh? Ponderous. All right, here, here. All right, go. What, what were we going to say, Tom? Go ahead. I was just worried you were going to start doing, like, uh, is it Blade Runner? Because that has voiceover. Blade it's Runner! <laughs> it's not Blade Runner. Okay. See, I can do Australian. <laughs> All right, here, here's, a, here's one more quote from the film, and I think Tom will get Chris it. Chris Head and... Yeah. I think Tom will get it when I get this second quote. Okay, good. She was known for her extreme secrecy. For example, none of the Tenenbaums knew she was a smoker, which she had been since the age of 12. <laughs> uh, where does... Is it, is it the tent? What, 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 is, what's, what is hidden and where is it hidden? Um, it is cigarettes, and it is her first hiding place for cigarettes in the chimney on the roof. And it's at the very end of the film when Margot, well, near the very end of the film, when Margot and Richie are, are sitting up on the roof, and, and they're discussing Mordecai's new white feathers. And um, it's been this, this really traumatic and intense time for the family. And Margot has just given up smoking, which she's just been discovered that she's a smoker by her entire family, so she gave it up. So she has this phony cigarette that she's drawing on. And uh, they're talking about Mordecai, and she just gives this look over to um, this great look she gives to the bricks of the uh, chimney. And then she looks at Richie, her quote-unquote brother, and then she takes the brick out, and there's this little packet of cigarettes and matches wrapped in uh, uh, like a Ziploc or plastic right there in this little nook that she's clearly carved out of the bricks. And it's this great little hiding place, this, this loose brick. She pulls it out. She pulls the cigarettes out, and he asks her how long have those been there. And she says something like uh, she smells the cigarettes, and she says, I think about 10 years. And she takes two of them out, and she gives one to him and, and uh, lights. She lights both of them and gives, gives one to him. And, and this little... A little cache of cigarettes and it's clear that this character has had these all over the place for entire life in fact earlier you see her uh she's had she has cigarettes hidden in a q-tips box so it's clear that that she has figured out all of these things she's a secretive person she's hidden her cigarettes for years and this is one of her first things and it's a reveal very near the end of the movie and i just love the way she looks and the reveal all right I like that movie. <laughs> I like that movie and I like that choice, but I don't, I'm not behind a brick in a chimney. That's nowhere near as good as like Val Cameron's balls or Chris Foley's <laughs> Yeah, it's not unique. And a money belt's one of his other ones. Yeah. Get a load of this guy. Yeah. Money belt, brick. She's <laughs> <laughs> in the. Uh... <laughs> oh, no. All right. Uh, what did we have for runners up? I actually didn't have any. Did I? No. I. I had uh, Elliot's sister's closet in E.T. when E.T.'s hiding, and he's pretending to be a stuffed animal. Good. Yeah, fuck you, Kelly. <laughs> no, that's uh, a good one. There's the picture, doesn't... 
Oh no, I'm 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 confusing the the part where D Wallace takes a picture and blinds him, the little ET when he's in the ghost outfit. But isn't there something where he blends in with a bunch of stuffed animals? That's the closet. Oh yeah. Oh, okay, that's good. Uh, 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 and also Duke Leto's tooth in Dune. Oh God. Uh-huh. <laughs> And also uh, in this book, Stone 588 by Gerald Brown, who's like the Clive Cussler of gem-themed adventure drama novels, The Healing Stones Hidden in the Evil Mother-in-Law's Vagina. What were your runners up? But what was his other gem? What was his famous gem novel? Uh, Purchase Street or some street? Eleven yeah. Harrow House? Eleven Harrow House? Oh yeah, yeah, at Eleven Harrow House. Uh, There's yeah. one after that one, but before Stone Five Eight Eight. That's like the big one. That was. I like the Eleven Harrow House very much. I like that guy. I like his writing. I feel bad I think, now. I spoiled. I think actually Charles Grodin talks about. I think he did a, an adaptation of that, didn't he? Wasn't he in an adaptation of Eleven Harrow House? Yeah, I think he was. That might I be where he gets. That might be where he gets the name for his his autobiography, which is a. a I wish you weren't here, or something like that. I think it was while he was filming Eleven Harrow House. Nineteen Purchase Street—that was the other one I can remember. And I think I read the one about the mudslide. Well, Wendy will know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'll ask her later. Yeah. Tom likes it. Uh. <laughs> Gerald uh, Brown. How about Star Wars? That's no moon. <laughs> I had two. Uh, I had two runners up that weren't ones that Tom chose because two of my runner ups were ones that Tom chose. Um, uh, the restaurant bathroom where they hide the the gun. Ah, uh, oh, good one. Ah, oh, that is good. Godfather. Uh, good Very one. good one. Dingus. Oh. But I didn't want to do weapons. I I just got into this great vibe of characters helping each other. That'll be the one someone uh, will go. Oh yeah, that one. And then someone else will go. It was on the podcast. And then the guy go. I don't listen to the podcast. Fuck. <laughs> the, the other one was uh, was um, Silence of the Lambs, where Hannibal Lecter uh, secrets a um, uh, a handcuff key, which actually he takes from the pen of, of Doctor Chilton in in his gums, and I like that as a hiding place. You could also use him as him using somebody else's face as a hiding place, but I just right. don't do ah good. He's hiding his face with a face. And I'm very pleased that none of you uh, did Shawshank Redemption, so thank you. What's the hiding place there? The well, mouse? The tunnel. Hello. Oh, right, right. The Rita Hayward oh. poster. Yeah, okay. Wait, that's not a hiding place. It's a hidden place. The place well, is the... Well, yeah. well, you could have said a, a poster. Behind a poster would be a hiding place. Uh, I guess we, me and Tom cared about... There has to be an object hidden behind something, and it couldn't be a heart. That was your stipulation. <laughs> or feelings. <laughs> yeah, or feelings. Anything but those two. And if if I had not taken off the table the, the little smuggling bays of the Millennium Falcon, would one of you guys pick that? Tom, the Gomjabar hides pain. Or wait, not the Gomjabar. <laughs> uh, what is it? What's the cube called? The box of death to your hand. Oh, it has a name. The Doesn't testing it? box. It's called. We call that one Muad'Dib. I don't know your mm. Dune silliness, Kelly Wand. Oh. No, I don't know Dune what they call course. the box. I think it's just the box. Put your hand in the box, and then he says, "What's in the box?" <laughs> My hand. 
That's how he talks. But the gum jabar is the thimble with the needle on it that has right, right, poison. Right. That uh, that hides poison. That hides poison. Yeah. So. And there's hidden agendas in Dune. We could talk about that for another <laughs> hour. That's right. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, next week's three by three. You guys ready for this? It's inspired mm. by a movie we saw called James Cameron's Sanctum. Oh, good. Hmm. So there's one little bit in James Cameron's Sanctum. This isn't a spoiler. Where uh, Richard Roxburgh, who's supposed to be uh, an accomplished diver and spelunker and probably even a climber, uh, a clever girl character, is, uh, he's doing some. Uh, they've just used some rope to attempt a dangerous climbing maneuver, and he's sitting there tying the rope together into this kind of like braided formation that I guess mountain climbers do to sling rope over their shoulder. And I was so bored with the movie at that point. That's something that I was like, wow, what's he doing? Look at him. What's he doing there? Look at, what is that? Uh, and he's doing some braiding thing with the rope. And it, it made me think of, we had a three by three of actors playing musical instruments where it's not faked, where the actors, you actually see them playing a musical instrument. So what I want for the next three by three are impressive physical bits by an actor that aren't faked. Uh, and the, the rope bit made me think of it. I mean, there are plenty of them that are faked. You know, you think of the ping pong ball thing, with Julianne Moore and Clive Owen in Children of Men. That was a CG ping pong ball. It was fake. They didn't do that. Uh, you know, uh, Lance Henriksen's knife trick in Aliens. You know, that's just fake. They sped up the camera. Lance Henriksen was not really moving the knife that quickly. But there are little cool bits. And I'm thinking of Richard Roxburgh with the rope where an actor does some some little physical bit. And I just want three instances of non-faked physical bits by an actor. So Linda Blair's head spinning wasn't fake. Well, that's the thing. Like, I think of, uh, you know, Natalie Portman dancing in Black Swan. So much of that was faked. It was like CG stuff. And, and that's actually a little bit more like, don't pick, you know, Christian Bale losing weight in The Machinist. I don't necessarily mean something big and epic. It's like, not a physical bit. like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of physical bits. What about Natalie Portman dancing in Closer? Uh, was it? Sand, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what I'm talking about. You're a man of the world. <laughs> so uh, there you go. That, that's what we're doing for uh, next week's 3x3. Three three. Uh, also, mm. next week we will be seeing Enter the Void, which is out on... Uh, you know, uh, sweet. Movie from last year. Um, Can't so wait. Watch Enter the Void. Join us next week. We'll be having a spoiler, uh, very spoilery discussion. We'd like you to come along with us. And then after that, I like that we're picking all my uh, top ten movies as special DVD picks. Oh, that's right. We did Buried, which was your number eight, and Enter the Void. I think was your number four. I don't know. It's pretty high up. Two. Say two. two. That's pretty high up there. Yeah. Right behind the King's Speech. (laughs) I don't know what I was on that day, but. Yeah. So join us for that next week. Uh, I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Milizinski. Close. It's Christian Moroski. And Kelly Wand. Keep them sanctum, make them fire water.
for more first rate cutting edge zeitgeist pleasantries uh just listen to this again i guess i don't know 